0: And so it is, we come now, as uh, we continue in Exodus, we will be reading this morning from chapter 6, verses 2 through 7, chapter 6, verses 2 through chapter 7, verse 7 is what we will be reading. And you will find that in your, in your pew Bible on page 48, the book of Exodus, or find it on your device, and please follow carefully as we read the Lord's word together. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord says to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And these are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Enoch, Alu, Hezron, Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. And these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the years of life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebram, Uziel, the years of life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Moshe. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses the years of life, Amron being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepeg, Zikri, The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elsiphon, and Sithri. Aaron took his wife, El- Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. And she bore Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took his wife, one of the daughters of Petiel, and she bore him Phinehas. And these are the heads of his father's house of the Levites by their clan. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel, from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and Aaron. And on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Israel and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Moses. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our hope God stand forever. Amen.
1: Um, I had actually emailed uh Jamie on Monday saying that. We could skip the reading of the genealogy, but she wanted to mistreat Bob, I think. So <laughs> I was laughing through, through some of that. Uh, that. That was rough. <laughs> I, th- I saw some people's eyes glaze over. I don't know. That's probably why there's a little lower attendance. I'm trying to preach through a genealogy today, and that's that's never popular. Uh, we We left off last week in Exodus chapter 5 where... God had said to uh, Moses and Aaron to go and speak to Pharaoh, and uh, they did, and everything got worse. The, the straw was taken away to make the bricks, and uh, the people complained to, to Pharaoh directly, and then they complained to Aaron and Moses, and then there's a lamentation essentially from Moses to God, and we, we saw last week in verse 1 of chapter 6, the beginnings of an answer. We just focused on the fact that God does answer uh, when we have these lamentations. And so this morning, we look further about how God answers our suffering, and he's going to do so by uh, several reassurances. Firstly, that'll be by reminding us of his identity Secondly, by confirming his chosen leadership, and then thirdly, he reassures us by telling us his actions, what he's going to do, in great detail. Firstly, in our suffering, he reassures us by reminding us of his identity. We see that in chapter six, uh, the verses two to eight, um, in the past, in the present, and in the future. He reminds us of his identity. Not focusing on the circumstances we're in or the questions that we have unanswered, but who he is. In the past, verses 2 through 4, verse 2 mentions a Hebrew name for God, El Shaddai. Uh, What does that mean? Um, Well, God says he appeared in the past to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Uh, so it could be translated, I am the Almighty. Genesis 17, 1 records God as El Shaddai to Abraham when he was childless, but told he would be the father of many nations. Genesis 43, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt during the famine to see Joseph and commended them in their time of turmoil to God Almighty, or El Shaddai. One commentator, Alec Mateer, says, El Shaddai could mean the God who is sufficient for personal inadequacies. Which is essentially what we've been seeing. As Moses has lodged laments or questions and God has answered, it's focused mostly not on who Moses is, but on who God already has been to the patriarchs. He was sufficient for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob already in the past. So he will be. So he is to Moses and Aaron. But also, he reminds us of his identity in the present. The end of verse 3 implies that God hadn't fully made himself known to the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, and he's about to further reveal himself now to them. He reminds them of the covenant relationship. He had with the patriarchs, and that in that relationship, there was a land promise. Verse 5 says he's remembered the covenant promise that he made. He's remembered it now in their present circumstances. The covenant, the promise of relationship that he had made in the past, it has present impact because... How on earth can these people inherit land when they're enslaved? They don't own anything. Obviously, he's insinuating of what he's about to do about that land promise. Then he says in verse 5, he's heard the groanings of his people. What he said in the past is coming to bear on the present suffering. It is the answer to their circumstances. His identity of covenant faithfulness to a people, the promises of Genesis 15 are being fulfilled, which I will go into more detail in, in the, in the genealogy. What about the future? And this is where we'll just focus for a second. Why is this reassurance of, of who's, who God is, who's, who he's going to be in the future, Verses 6 to 8 give the specifics of what he's going to do in the midst of their suffering. Dr. Chris Wright points out there are seven I will statements very quickly here put into three categories. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. They all point to the first category of redemption. Despite the horrifying nature the present circumstances of their slavery that has gotten nothing but worse of recent, seemingly because of Moses and Aaron, there is this promise of redemption. To redeem, uh, we could go all day. Uh, Regarding land would mean to buy back at market value. In family matters or disputes, a next of kin can avenge a family member, such as Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19. Definition summarized here, Alec Mateer again. From Exodus 6-6 onwards, however, The price-paying emphasis is always present. The Lord knows and possesses his people and is ready to pay whatever price is needed in order to implement his next of kin right to redeem them and to take upon himself all their needs as if his own. And their needs are great. And he says, I'll make your needs my needs. I will redeem you. I will pay whatever price it takes to get you out of this situation. And that's the promise that he's made to us today, obviously. But continuing back to what Chris Wright was saying, the second category from redemption, here's some more I wills. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God, which emphasizes the covenant relationship. The redemption is the focus of these first several chapters of Exodus. But the back end will be that we've been pointing towards a covenant relationship, covenant promise and fulfillment, but that this God wants a people he wants to relate to, emphasizing this relationship. Then there's the third category. I will bring you to the land and I will give it to you as a possession. Again, pointing back to centuries of promises that this nomadic people that were elected only because God chose them in this nation Israel will have a place to live will have a place to celebrate their redemption and to relate to this covenant God they will have a place they will have a location they will have everything that they need to flourish and to survive and to be a blessing to the nations but there's a fourth category that Dr. Wright points out. when God says in verse seven, "You shall know. You shall know." That's the purpose of the redemption and the laws and the covenant relationship and even the land that they are to live into, is to know who Yahweh is. to have a relationship with Him. To be circumcised not simply on the outside. But to be circumcised in the heart, that there would be a genuine relationship with this covenant keeping, redeeming God. Not to go through the motions, not to just say, well, I'm going to heaven because I'm an Israelite. Never was it about that. The redemption is so that they will know him, they will know further his character, they will love him more deeply. The prophet Ezekiel, much later in the life of Israel, is prophesying of judgment because the shepherds are devouring the sheep, the kings do not serve Yahweh, and they are about to go into exile, but nearly 80 times the prophet Ezekiel will say that the purpose of this judgment and then the restoration is so that the Israels will know that I am Yahweh. So that they will know. They will know who I am. All of this is in the future. If you, you think about the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Redemption covers Exodus 7-18. The details of the covenant relationship in the Ten Commandments and following in 19 to 24. Knowing God in their worship with the tabernacle and priests in 25 to 40, and all of Leviticus and all of Numbers, and then all of the land. Deuteronomy, and then into Joshua. Here, God is saying in verses 6 to 8, what's going to happen in the rest of the story? In the midst of their desperate suffering, questionable circumstances, God says, who am I, your God, that you're serving? Focus on my identity. Focus on who I was, who I claimed to be, who I am now, and listen to what I'm going to do. Worship me. Have a relationship with me. Know me. Despite all of the circumstances you're dealing with. But secondly, you will remember that last week there was mild complaining maybe from the people against Moses and Aaron say, hey, you people, God needs to judge you. You have made this so much worse for us. But in God's economy, he always uses leaders. These are God's leaders. But to give reassurance to the people, he confirms his chosen leadership through this genealogy. But firstly, we need to look at the need For this confirmation. Uh, Verse 9 says, Moses spoke to the people all of what God has told him, and they didn't listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. These are people who are weighted down in unimaginable injustice. They can't even listen anymore. Moses hasn't made it better, he's he's made it worse. Then he comes back and speaks to them again, and they say, I don't even want to hear it anymore, Moses. They need leadership and direction. Verses 10 to 12 record God telling Moses uh, to go ahead and approach Pharaoh again. But Moses protests, saying, if our people won't listen, why on earth will he listen? And then after the genealogy, he continues in verses 28 to 30, protesting God again, saying, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? commentator Doug Stewart says this isn't a new protest it's reiterating what he said before the genealogy I can often relate to Moses's complaint there no one's gonna listen to me you heard me speak Yahweh I can't speak no one's gonna listen to me no one should listen to me no one needs to listen to me Jeremiah says the same thing here's the rub Every leader needs confirmation. Every leader is a sinner. Every leader is is weak. Every leader is a frail human. Moses and Aaron, Moses has already messed up several times. Moses will never go into the promised land because of his disobedience. Aaron will get upset with Moses for marrying someone from another race will be judged. David never got to build the temple. Leaders are frail. They need confirmation. But what's the nature of this confirmation? Ah, a genealogy. Why on earth is this here? This genealogy is an authentication of who Moses and Aaron are. Since there's been such a disaster in these circumstances and the people need reassurance that they would actually, they should follow these two men. God proves to them who they are. Who's your daddy? That's what's most important. And an Israelite leader. Very quickly, verse 26 actually mentions uh, Aaron's name first, so we're going to highlight him, but verse 27 says Moses and Aaron, so they're both very important. God's trying to reassure his people through confirmi- confirming who these guys are. Okay, verse 14 locates them as related to Reuben, who was the firstborn of Israel, who according to Genesis 35:10 is who? Jacob. Stop right there. Who does God most associate with in the patriarchs of the Old Testament? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a good start to authenticating that these are God's people for this task. Continuing incidentally, in that same chapter, Genesis 35:11, God self-identifies as El Shaddai. Moses and Aaron are related to one of the three great patriarchs. Then verse 16 locates Levi as their great-grandfather. Verse 18, Kohath is their grandfather. Verse 20, Amram is their father. Who cares? But in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, God tells Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign country for 400 years, but he would liberate them in the fourth generation. Levi lived for 137 years. Kohath lived for 133 years. Amram lived 137 years, which totals 407 years. And they are in the fourth generation. These two knuckleheads are actually God's leaders, as was prophesied all the way back before Levi, before Jacob, all the way back to Abraham. These are my guys. I am Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. I know what your circumstances are, and it's taken generations. But they're going to do something about it. There's even more. I noted verse 26 had Aaron's name first. And again, back to Dr. Chris Wright, he notes that there are three listed uh, women with names included in this genealogy, which is very strange for a genealogy, in the Old Testament especially. Why is that there? Who are they? Aaron's mother, uh, Jochebed, that's obviously Moses' mother too, Uh, Aaron's wife, Elisheba, and Aaron's daughter-in-law, Putiel, None of Moses' sons are listed, but Aaron's family is to the third generation, including a grandson named Phinehas. Why? The priesthood of Israel will come from the tribe of Levi. And so Aaron is the first in the line of all of the high priests. Again, if Moses, we think of Moses with regards to God's redemption of his people in the Exodus. We need to see Aaron emblematic of that covenant relationship that says, I am a holy God. I want to be near my people. How am I going to be near my people? The building of the tabernacle will be the rest of the book. The the garments that the priests should wear. The whole book of Leviticus is how a holy God can live next door to an unholy people. It's by blood sacrifices. Who does all of that? priests generations of doubting israelites not simply those in the exodus generation should be able to look back to this genealogy and say god redeems his people but he gives us a priesthood that that we would know him that we would know the forgiveness of our sins as we look at the animal sacrifices, the whole sacrificial system that enables us to live next door to God, that He's going to give us a house for Him to live in, in the tabernacle and then the temple. It's all here with Moses and Aaron, but it's not simply for their generation, all generations of Israelites. Should be able to look at this. Now, obviously, we don't confirm leaders in the church today by genealogy. We do by beliefs and character, rooted in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, that we as leaders would help people know the Lord, that we would be used as as frail human beings in our word. And in our character, that we would point back to this covenant-keeping, faithful God. That's the point. That's the purpose. But God says, you have been given my leaders. They will do what I command. And you should be reassured in your suffering. Because I've not left you by yourselves. I've given you Aaron and Moses to lead you. As he gives us leaders today. See, the genealogy is not that painful. It gives it chills in some ways to think how many centuries passed from Abraham. Then to the fourth generation of Levi comes redemption and relationship. But then finally, the beginning of uh, chapter 7, before we have some real fun next week and go through all the plagues, we look. At God reassuring us by telling us his actions. What's he gonna do in detail? He's told us his identity, past, present, and future. He's he's confirmed his, his leadership, even as crazy as they are and as ineffective seemingly as they are. What's he gonna do about my unanswered questions and about my present circumstances and suffering that are horrifying? These few verses before the plague. In light of Moses' confessed weaknesses, reassures us of this, according again to Chris Wright. God is basically saying to us, it's not about you, it's about me. Moses, this is not your task, this is not your mission, these are not your people, these are my people. Listen to what I'm going to do. I have made you like God to Pharaoh, Moses. I have given you a prophet in your brother Aaron. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will lay my hand on Egypt. I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Moses, stop complaining. Stop worrying about your life. Stop worrying about the future and living in constant anxiety. Look at what I am going to do. This whole thing has been about me and my people, not about your competency, your leadership capabilities, or your own godliness. It's my mission. Listen and see what I will do. Then it says, just like Israel will know who I am because of the acts of redemption, it says that Egypt will know That I am the Lord. See, God is going to answer all of the sufferings of his people. But he's also going to smite all of our enemies. Egypt is going to go down. And we're going to see that in full detail next week in all of the plagues. This is so counterintuitive to every Israelite who's going to hear these words from Moses and Aaron, they're going to say, are you nuts? You've made our lives worse. He's not done anything about our suffering. And Egypt is going to go down? That's the most powerful nation. That's the most powerful man in the world. No one can take him down. But God tasks Moses to tell Aaron to tell Pharaoh, let my people go you will go down. And we know that's what happens. But it's almost evangelism because Egypt will know. Even though these enemies today are smited in Egypt, Psalm 87 references Rahab and others not born in or of Israel, but eventually will be treated as if they were born in Israel. Isaiah 19, it actually references a time when there will be a revival in Egypt. Isaiah 56 references the salvation of foreigners. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. See, this idea of deliverance from judgment is here for the Israelites, but for even future generations, possibly of Egyptians, Gentiles, non-Jews. Yes, that's even in the Old Testament. Deliverance, even From judgment. How can there be deliverance from judgment? How can we be ultimately reassured amidst our own suffering? What's the greatest act that God will ever do? It's not the Exodus. Although that was the greatest act of redemption in all of the Old Testament. There is something greater because there will be a better priest... Than Aaron. There will be a better leader than Moses. There will be someone who has a better genealogy than these two men. It's located in Matthew chapter 1 of the Lord Jesus Christ. How will there be redemption for failing, frail sinners? Like Moses and like Aaron, like potential generations of Egyptians, and like you and me, Gentiles. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 Therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what's the ultimate action of God. That's what this Exodus event that we're going to read about in the next two weeks is ultimately pointing toward the Exodus, not from physical slavery. From the slavery of physical, spiritual, emotional, eternal sin. That can save Israelites. That can eventually save maybe even Egyptians. That can save any Jew or Gentile who repents of their sins. Who looks to the cross of Christ for salvation. For you and me. If you want reassurance in the midst of anything you're dealing with now, look to the ultimate act of redemption, of a display of covenant-keeping faithfulness, of a God who wants to have a relationship with you. It's because the Father so loved the world. He sent us His only begotten Son that you would have eternal life. Go from this place reassured of his love for you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a better priest. You are the great high priest. With your one-time sacrifice, you tore the curtain of the temple, which gives us access to you even this morning through prayer and the power of the Spirit that you have sent to us. May we never doubt the assurance of our salvation regardless of enslavement of your people. In the Old Testament, you sent Moses and Aaron to care for your people, the sheep of your flock. May you do so this morning in word, prayer, and sacrament for all of us who need the reassurance of your love for forgiven sinners, we pray. Amen.